The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Turning to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we continue our study, our series together through the book of 1 Timothy, and we'll begin with reading verses 1 through 7, though the verses that we consider today are verses 1 through 4. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, God and men rather, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. We begin a new line of thought today in our study through 1 Timothy as Paul begins to transition into one of the more practical teachings of 1 Timothy, our responsibility as the body of Christ to pray for others around us. Now again, we've defined this epistle as First and Second Timothy and Titus are all referred to as a pastoral epistle. That is to say, Paul writes to one who has the oversight in a congregation. Ministers of the gospel, pastors are just that. They're shepherds. The word pastor means a shepherd. And we have, looking at the terms that the Bible uses to describe ministers of the gospel, we have special responsibilities in the house of God. We're referred to as elders, one who is of authority, We're referred to as bishops, and the word bishop also translates overseer. And so we know we have a position of oversight in the house of God. We're referred to as those that bear the rule in the house of God, not that we're lords over God's heritage, but we're servant leaders. We take the word of God and we instruct congregations based upon what the word of God says. And in doing that, we teach you not only what God's word teaches about the nature of God, the nature of man, the salvation of man that God himself and God alone brings, but also how we're to conduct ourselves as far as the practicality of Christian living, how we're to behave ourselves. Paul would tell Timothy that he would have him to know how to behave himself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so in these pastoral epistles, we glean the words of one minister of the gospel, a mentor, if you will, to his apprentice, his son in the ministry, and we learn what men are to teach their congregations, what's important. If you had dying letters to write to someone in the church and you had to tell them what was important for them to know and to do as ministers of the gospel, you find that in Paul's writings to Timothy. Now, today we learn of the crucial importance of prayer specifically for others in a congregation. In other words, congregations of people ought to be praying people. We should be a praying people, people who pray. My brother said one time that the prayer of the church collectively is one of the most underutilized weapons in the house of God. It's listed in the armor of God in the book of Ephesians. And most of those are defensive pieces of armor. We take on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. We have our loins girt about with truth and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. But then we take the sword of the Spirit and we, having done all to stand, stand with all prayer, persevering in prayer with all supplication. So... Prayer is one of the weapons in our arsenal that when we utilize both individually and collectively, things change in the world around us. Now, as we introduce that thought to you today, sometimes people say, if God is sovereign, then why would we pray? And their question 
is based on a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. The doctrinal teachings of the sovereignty of God, the theology of God's sovereignty doesn't mean that because God is sovereign, everything in the world is prescripted in such a way that there is no liberty of the creature. That isn't what our people have ever believed. The sovereignty of God is the reason why we pray. It doesn't make prayer irrelevant, for we know through many other scriptures that we have not because we ask not. That means that if we ask, then God hears and the world around us is impacted through God answering our prayers. God's sovereignty doesn't mean we don't have to pray. God's sovereignty gives us the hope and the trust that when we pray, God has the power to intervene in human history and alter, as perhaps you could compare to the way the landscape alters the path of a river, God can, in his sovereignty, alter the path of human history. As we pray, God intervenes. As we beg him, he answers our prayers. I can tell you just practically as we think about the storms that I'm sure most of us stayed up last night watching. I told someone this morning when I came in that I'm operating on very little sleep and far too much caffeine. Because much like most of you, I stayed up until about 1240 watching as the storms passed into Alabama. And I probably could have stayed up all night watching the storms as one tornado after another began to spool and to spin and I set my alarm for 2.30 and woke up at 2.30 and watched and woke back up at 3 and watched. I kept setting my alarm for later and later every time I'd wake up. And finally, about 4 o'clock, I stayed up watching as the storms continued to move through Alabama until about 4.50 when all of the warnings for our area were expired. And about 4.30, tornadoes started to spool up in St. Clair County and head right toward my parents and my brother's homes, respectively, and I can tell you I was a praying man. (laughs) I prayed all night, it feels like, and I saw God answer those, and many of God's people prayed and prayed and prayed, and it was His will to answer, and the storms that could have been so devastating were not nearly as bad as they could have been. We live in a cursed world. Please understand that because of the interjection of sin into society, we live in a world that has tornadoes and earthquakes and volcanoes and famines and sickness and plagues. But when we pray to God, God hears and he answers. And so we should be a praying people. In Paul's exhortation to Timothy, and you notice that this is very much an exhortation, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and intercessions rather, and givings of thanks should be made for all men. He's exhorting us to pray, to seek God, and to beg God for his intervention in mankind, in history, in both a private and a collective sense. We should pray individually, and we should pray collectively. This word that translates prayer, for instance, and we'll, we'll speak a little bit about each of these individual terms in just a moment, but the word that translates prayer can even be translated as a house of prayer. So sometimes the word in the original language that came into our English language as prayer could be defined as what each of us do when we pray. It can have reference to what a group of people do collectively when they pray, and it can even have reference to the place that people go to pray. So I want you to get that imagery in your mind as we speak about prayer, that this word prayer in the original language can even have reference to where people go when they pray. What did Jesus say about the church of God and the temple of God, even in his day prior to the the church setting sail into the world? What was God's house supposed to be? It was supposed to be a house of prayer unto all nations. The church is a place where people ought to collectively pray. In studying the concept of prayer this week, I read through many occurrences of the word prayer in Scripture and So many times when the word occurs, and I want you to fact check this as you go home during the week. So many times when the word prayer occurs, it isn't having reference even to the individual's prayer, though sometimes it does, but to the collective prayer of the church of God as they come together and they lift up their voices with one accord to God and they beg God for his intervention in the world. Do you remember when the apostle Peter was imprisoned in the book of Acts as 
The earlier chapters of Acts follow the Apostle Peter and James and John, and then it begins to pivot towards the Apostle Paul as the church begins to turn to Gentiles and preach to non-Jews, people like you and people like me. If you remember, when the Apostle Peter was imprisoned, what the church found themselves doing was praying collectively for him. There was a need in the church. They didn't say, well, we've got to wait until Sunday because we can only meet on Sunday. Far be it from the church for the church to think they can only meet on Sunday. They come together because there's a special need. And what do they do? They pray to God for Peter's release. And the next thing you know, what happens? An angel of the Lord delivers Peter out of that prison. Peter thinks he's in a vision. Until he gets past the gate, he realizes that, no, I'm actually conscious. An angel actually came and released me from jail. And as they're collectively praying together, lo and behold, here Peter comes knocking on the door, answering. God is answering that prayer request that had been given. And there was much rejoicing in the house of God because some of the apostles, James, for instance, had already been martyred. People were beginning to die for their faith. And here Peter is imprisoned and they think Peter's next. And here he is knocking on the door as the church was together praying. God hears our prayers. In Acts chapter 4, when the apostles first began to experience the kickback of their society against gospel preaching, they go into one place and they lift up their voice with one accord and they begin to call upon God. And as they prayed in Acts chapter 4, we read that, When they concluded their prayer, when they said their amen, the earth began to shake and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. They were invigorated to go preach the gospel. And they went out in the next chapter and they publicly preached. In the following chapter, they publicly preached. In the following chapter, they publicly preached. It emboldened them, emboldened them to know that God heard their prayer and answered even with the shaking of the earth. God hears your prayers. And I want our church to be a praying church. What is Paul telling Timothy here? That he wants Timothy's congregation, the church at Ephesus, to be a praying congregation. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, the first obvious implication of this is that as we pray, our prayers should not just be for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those of the local congregation, though, as Paul said, we should do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of faith. If judgment begins at the household of God, then perhaps our charity and our prayers should begin at the household of God. This week I was here, as I spent a substantial portion of my week here at our church building, and I did something that I've done many times in the past, and I know other pastors that do, they do this, my brother does this, I will walk around the building with no one here, and in my mind, I will see where you sit. It helps me remember every one of you. And as I look and I see where your pew is, because we're Baptists, and as Baptists, we all have assigned seating. Amen? (laughs) We sit in the same place every time. I don't have to look around. I mean, I know exactly where I'm looking when I look. I know where every one of you sits. We all have our own assigned seating. And... So I look where you sit because it's the same place, and I prayed for you individually. I prayed for your families, and I saw you in my mind. And there's so many elders, so many pastors I know that do just that. I was talking to my brother about this just a couple of weeks ago as he had been in the church house there in Leeds and was praying for the congregation that he serves. Prayer begins at the household of God. Prayer begins here. We know our prayer needs. And you can see this bear itself out in the book of James. James exhorts the believers to whom he writes to confess their faults, not their sins, but their faults, one to another, because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we love to quote that verse, right? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we think about it when we're facing a tornado outbreak. Or we think about it when we know someone facing cancer. Or we go into the hospital to pray with someone before a surgery or during a surgery to pray with their family. We love to think about that verse. But we forget that the verbiage right before that so memorized language is, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. 
Part of what James is saying is that as believers, we confess or we are to confess the things that we struggle with one to another. In other words, if you struggle with anger, you confess, I I struggle with anger to your brothers and sisters in the church and they can pray, dear God, bless brother Ben that he be not angry. Or if you struggle with envy or you struggle with greed or you struggle with laziness or you struggle with lust or any other problem, any other sin, you don't tell them dates and times and individual infractions. That's not what he says. He says faults. We confess the sins that we struggle with to God. And when God hears that, when, excuse me, we confess it to our brothers, and when they hear that, they take our case to God. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We're so ashamed or we're so proud, one or the other, that we don't confess our faults one to another anymore. And I don't know the cause of that. I don't know the root of that. Was it, was it an overabundance, a, a quickness to exercise church discipline in the previous generation that made the rest of us reluctant to confess our faults? Or is it simply American pride? I don't know the answer to that question. But I know we handicap ourselves when we don't confess our faults one to another. And I would encourage you to do that and to say, this is what I struggle with. I struggle with whatever issue, and to confess that, if not collectively to other brothers or sisters in the church to pray for you and to hold you accountable for the things that you struggle with. Prayers to begin at the household of faith. But notice what he says here. I exhort that prayer, supplications, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, that ends with a semicolon, so what follows in the remaining language is built around that particular verse and that particular principle. Why is that important? I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But before we do that, notice how prayer breaks into four categories. First of all, supplications. Secondly, prayers. Third, intercessions. Fourth, giving of thanks. Now, I confess to you as we begin to look at each of these individually that as I think of these, they blur. The lines between these concepts blur. They're blended together. If someone were to ask you, what's the difference in a prayer and an intercession? Or what's the difference in a supplication and an intercession? There are times that prayer is all of the above. And so how are we to understand Paul's language here, because he's very specific. He gives us four different types of prayers. Well, sharing the definitions of these, you see that they overlap, but at the same time, they have their own individual area, their own individual focus, you might say. Supplication has reference to the act of begging. Sometimes prayer has reference to the act of begging. I pray ye, one might say in the Bible to another person in the Bible simply to another person. We use a variation of that when we say pray tell. It's an idiom, a figure of speech. Oh, pray tell. And almost today it's used exclusively in a sarcastic sense. At least it is with me. Pray tell. Pray tell. What does that mean? I beg you to tell me. Pray tell. Supplications, though, have reference to when we just simply beg our case to God. When we beg to him, I want you to understand that you can go to God and beg him. Now, this is the amazing thing about prayer. The spirit of Christ is sent into our hearts crying, what? Abba, Father. And yet, as the Lord begins his prayer, he reminds us of this fact as he says, our father, which is in heaven. But this father that is in heaven to whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty, the God of creation. What a concept is that, that we can go to God and we can beg our case. And though on one hand, in one sense, it's as if a a beggar or a pauper begging a king. On the other hand, it's like the prodigal son going to his father that rejoices to see him approaching and kills the fatted lamb when he 
sees him coming up the drive. The father that loves you, that you cry Abba unto, is the king of the universe. And while we come to him with reverence, we understand that he has all power in heaven and in earth. And he owns this world. It is my father's world. And he can hear our prayers and he can answer when it is his will. And we know that we are to pray, thy will be done. And we ask him according to his will. And sometimes his answer is no. And when it is, thy will be done. But we know so many times his will is yes. We beg him and he answers. And he's merciful. He's rich in mercy. He's long-suffering. He's kind and he's gentle and he's patient. He loves his children. Prayer, number two, has reference to any time we approach and speak to God. We simply come to Him and we converse with Him. We speak to Him. We pray to Him. We talk to Him. Now this has reference to, again, both private and collective prayer. We had two prayers already today in our service. What we did was collectively pray. We prayed for the service. We prayed that God would be here in our midst. We prayed that he would bless our singing. We prayed that he would bless us as we attempt to serve him in this world. So many things were asked of God collectively. As we consider in just a moment the specific things for which we pray, I want us to incorporate what we hear Paul say into the way we pray, not only privately but collectively. But this also has reference to our private prayers. And Jesus spoke about entering into our closet and praying. It's something that we do privately, and God answers openly. He blesses openly. Intercessions. What do we do when we intercede? We plead the case of another person to God. Now, we can engage in intercessions that are supplications. And all intercessions are prayers. You see how these blend together, but they also have an individual focus. Our intercessions are when we come before God to ask His blessing, ask His intervention on someone else that we know. We intercede on the behalf of another to God for them. When we have our prayer requests at the close of each service and you share the things that you know of in your life to pray for, and we recall those and we repeat those to the Lord throughout each week, what we're doing is we're interceding. We're engaging in intercessory prayer. We ask that God would intervene not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. We intercede on their behalf. So many times in the Bible, you can read where men interceded in the nation of Israel, in their history, in the lives of others. We get to fill that role. And finally, and so very importantly, giving of thanks. So many times our prayers are, Lord, please do not let a tornado hit my house. Please do not let a tornado hit the houses of anyone in our church. Please do not let a tornado knock our building over. A couple of years ago, a tornado went through this community, and I think some of your homes were damaged by that. And I was about three miles ahead of it, heading home from a rehearsal, and Elijah's texting me, Dad, please don't die. Well, I'll do my best. I'll try my hardest. And immediately after it passed through, I began driving through this area to see where it hit and to check on people and drove past some of your houses and drove past the building and just took a survey of everything that was damaged. But I prayed in that event. And how seldom do we stop when God answers and say, God, thank you so much. I thought about it this morning as I was prepping for my sermon on prayer that I went to bed last night after watching tornado coverage throughout the night and it occurred to me that I hadn't actually said thank you, that here we are the next day and our particular community was not heavily impacted by that. It reminds me of the preacher one time that had studied all week to preach on prayer and it occurred to him as he was sitting in the pulpit as the introductory hymn was being sung that he hadn't actually prayed to God that God would bless the sermon that he was about to attempt to preach on prayer. 
Sometimes it escapes us. This is why it's a discipline. It's like study. It's like exercise. It's like healthy eating. It's something that we have to build discipline in. Giving of thanks. God, thank you for all that you've done. Now, you notice the comma here, and this is when we begin to transition into the meat of what Paul is saying, the specifics of what he's saying, that these supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for who? For all men. Now, this phrase here, all men, we need to define all in the Bible, nearly without exception, means one of two things. It's defined as one of two things in one of two ways. Either all of a certain type or some of all types. And you can see this as every man in Judea went out to hear John the Baptist. Did every person in Judea literally go out? Well, no. When it's every man of, or every manner of beast, is really every manner, every species on earth represented in Peter's dream? Well, no. And there are many cases of this. You can look up the word all. All usually means, nearly without exception, all of a certain type or some of all types. What in specific is Paul telling us here? We should pray for all men, notice the next statement, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The application of the word all is framed in the following verses based upon its first usage here in verse 1. The point that Paul is making, and why is this important? Because when you come to verse 4, you have to know what all means. The point that he is making is that we pray for all sorts of men. As opposed to what? As opposed to only praying for those that we love, those that are a part of our church family. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he goes on to speak to what all means for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. What he is saying is that I would that you would pray for all types of men. Don't just pray for those that you love. Don't just pray for those that love you. Pray for all sorts of men. Now, that will be very important as we get to verse 4. And I want to emphasize that now. We're framing what it means that God will have all men to be saved in verse 4. I would that prayers be made for all men, indiscriminately, all sorts of men, even kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Part of the church's role as the salt of the earth is to pray for political leaders. How many of you have thought about politics this... No, no, no. Raise your hand if you haven't thought about politics this past week. Three, four... My wife's hands in the back. She could not care less. Out of all of you, I less than a half dozen. We live in a country that is obsessed with politics. Might I suggest the Christian response to political turmoil is to pray for our political leaders. Now, I'm not going to mention social media, and those of you that have been friends with me on social media for a decade know that there was a period of time when there might be a dozen or more political posts from me a year. I mean, I was the PB Facebook Rush Limbaugh. It was like a blog, one post after another after another. I did that so much on Twitter during one political controversy I was interviewed by BBC World Service Radio. I was on the front page of the Huntsville Times, the Birmingham News, and whatever the name of the paper is in Mobile, and on the front page of AL.com. I was very politically involved. 
And praise God, I was able to repent of that, and my life has been a whole lot better since. Sonny Pauls reminds congregations so often that we should never worry about things over which we have no control. If anything, politics teaches us is that we have very little hands-on control. What should the Christian response to political turmoil be? You've got the answer right here in verse 2. We engage in supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Part of the church's role as the salt of the earth is to pray for those who bear the rule over us. Now let's begin digging into that verse a little deeper. Uh, In the book of Titus chapter 2, to give you an example of all being all sorts, because I don't want to move on from this point without looking at Titus 2. In Titus chapter 2, we read a very similar statement to verse 4. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Does that mean that all men are eternally saved? Well, if all there means everyone without exception, yes. But we know that's not the case because we know that there's a heaven and a hell and there will be people in heaven and there will be people in hell. So the grace of God that brings salvation hasn't appeared, hasn't appeared to every man without exception, but it has appeared to what? All types of men. All types of men. You back up to Titus 2, 2, Titus 2, 3, Titus 2, 4, Titus 2, 6, and Titus 2, 9, and the language leading up to that statement that the grace of God hath appeared to all men speaks of aged men, aged women, husbands, wives, children, young men, servants, and masters. And then Paul says, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. What does that mean? All types of men and women and children of all societal classes, of all ethnicities, of all nationalities have been saved. God will save people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And so all in Titus, what does it mean? Titus 2, it means all there is Every type, every sort, all types of men. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the all in this passage has reference to all types of men as demonstrated in verse 2. We pray for all types of men. And I could make that point from so many other passages that God will have people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue with him in heaven. As we get to verse 4, God will have all men to be saved. All sorts of men to be saved. Before we get there, as we speak about the church's responsibility to pray for our leaders, Matthew chapter 5, I want you to understand how important your prayers are. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Salt is not only a flavoring, it's also a preservative. In a day before refrigerators, in a day before many of the chemical preservatives and the ability to can things the way that we can things, how did they preserve meat? Well, they did it by salting it. Think about the world as a dead carcass. And by the way, I don't think that's too graphic or disgusting as we think about the world. What are we without Christ? We are dead in trespasses and in sins. The world around us is dead. It's rotting because of the sin of Adam. What prevents the culture around us from rotting to the degree that it could? It's got to be salted. What then are you? You're the salt. You, friends, are the salt. If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? In other words, if you don't preserve the world around us through your Christ-likeness, through your prayer, through your goodness, through your love, through your compassion, who else is going to do it? Nobody. And so what happens then to the carcass, as it were? It rots. 
What, ha what is happening to American culture right now? Because we're all so distracted as believers doing every other thing in the world but worshiping God and discipleship. It's rotting around us. The salt has lost its savor in America. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5.13, If the salt has lost his savor, it's thenforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Reportedly, in the first century, how they would keep the weeds off the road in a, in a day before pavement and before roundup is they would salt the roads. And it would kill the, the weeds. I know that salt kills grass because about four years after I graduated high school, there was a group of evil seniors that salted their graduating class year in the hill in the grass at the high school I graduated from. That made people very angry. It should have been like us. What my buddies did was get uh, reflective street paint and put a big 99 in student parking that was about the size of this auditorium. You could see it from Google Maps. I was not there for that. I'll give you the names and addresses of the people who were. Some of them are primitive Baptists now, but anyway, names will be changed to protect the guilty. Salt kills grass. So Jesus said, if, a salt, if salt is not good to be ingested, if it's not good to preserve, if it's lost his savor, what do they do with it? They cast it out and use it to kill weeds. And it's trodden underfoot of man. The point there is, if we don't preserve this world, we're trampled upon. We're good for nothing but to be trampled upon. He goes on to say in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. I think for far too long, our particular people, the old school Baptists, have hid our light under a bushel. Jesus says, I didn't light this candlestick to put it under a bushel, but to put it on a candlestick to give light unto all that are in the house. We need to have very public churches. Our ministries need to be public. We need to broadcast in every form that we can do, that we can afford, that we can utilize the Word of God, whether it's face-to-face, -face, whether it's to... Invite everyone in the community to be a part of the house of God and call upon them to turn and to follow Christ. There, there is a part of our public ministry that is repent. And Paul preached repentance publicly. To preach the finished work of Christ to a culture around us, whether it be online or on the radio or face to face, by all means, as Paul would say, to preach the word. I think for too long we've come into our buildings, closed the blinds, shut the door, and engaged in our religion where no one could see. Nothing could be more opposite of what Jesus intends for the church to be than that. You know how open we are here? Every sermon I ever try to preach is, a, is up on the Internet. It's not even edited. There are gaffes and statements I say wrong. I'd love to edit out of my sermons. It's just unfiltered access to everything because the church is the light of the world. And if we don't shine the light, there will be no light. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, speaking specifically about our role to the government... I think the church serves a twofold role, first of all, in prayer, secondly, as the conscience. We, we call upon political leaders and kings and all that are in authority, we call upon them to do that which is right. There were times that Jesus interacted with soldiers and centurions, and he would call upon them to do their work justly. He didn't ever call upon soldiers to leave the military. Which answers the question, is it okay for me as a Christian to be a part of the military? Or do I have to be a pacifist in all things? Well, no, it's fine for you to fight for your country. And if you live in a noble, just country, it's encouraged for you to fight for your country. There were men of God in the Old Testament, according to Hebrews 11, who turned again to flight armies of invading nations through faith. You can be protectors of your land by faith. But whatever you do... The Word of God calls upon our elected officials, our servants, our protectors, our soldiers, 
to be just, to be good, to be noble, to be virtuous. But as we speak about our interactions with them and our responsibility to them, it is our role as the salt of the earth to continually lift up those who are in authority when we pray. Now let's look at this. For kings and for all that are in authority, I know people who only pray for the president if they like the president. Do we always like the president? No. Everyone be honest. In this country, you like one and you hate the next, or you hate the one and you like the next. It's just the way that it is, because we're in a politically polarized country. And I'm just as guilty as the rest of us. I'll say us. We're to pray for our president. I didn't vote for our president. doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say anything in here about voting for your king. They didn't vote for their king. You think Paul and the apostles had anything to do with who was Caesar or governor or Herod, the, quote, king of Judea? You think they had anything to do with who got in political power? No, and yet regardless of that, they were to pray for them. Pray for kings. Pray for your president and your vice president. Pray for him. He needs wisdom. He needs grace. He needs mercy. He needs Scripture before him. I occasionally tweet him Scripture. I did the last one. I don't know if he reads it. He probably never does. But that's all I can do other than pray. They need guidance. But he goes beyond that. For all that are in authority, not only... The king, in this case, Caesar, in our case, the president, the vice president. But we pray for all that are in authority. Think about how broad of a term that is. Think about some authorities in the world. You have the president, the vice president, you have the governor, you have the lieutenant governor, you have your senator on the federal level and your local representative on the federal level, but you also have a state senator and you have a state rep. All of these people who make laws and enforce laws on your behalf, they need wisdom. They need grace. They need instruction. And it is our responsibility to pray for them, to lift them up, and to beg their cause before God. But authority goes even beyond that. County commissioner, mayor. When's the last time you prayed for your county commissioner? That's not very often, if ever. But authority goes beyond that. What are some other authorities? How about your local police department? No one understands the need to pray for a police officer more than a police officer's spouse or a police officer's children. Growing up with dad at Birmingham Police Officer, six-month dangerous city in the United States, the year he retired, there were nights because he didn't want to work an easy shift and he didn't work, want to work an easy beat because I pick at him about this, but he was so mean he wanted to fight and make them pay. And that's what God put him in the world to do. So I would lay awake at night praying for my dad and worrying about him. Because he would come home and talk to mom about all the people that threatened him, stab him, cut him, shoot him. I'm going to come back when I get out of jail and come after you. And of course, dad's response was always, I'll be waiting, bring it on. But not in that polite of a way. You know him. Bless his heart. Pray for our police officers. They need it in this day and age. They can do nothing right in this day and age. Pray for our firefighters. Pray for our soldiers. Pray for all that are in authority. Whatever authority. We pray for all that are in authority. Again, all sorts of men. The sense here is all sorts of men. 
Now, to move quickly, sometimes we might not want to pray for them, but just as a reminder, who was the king, who was Caesar in Paul's day? A man named Nero. You know what Nero did? He used Christians as lanterns in the streets in Rome. And Paul says, pray for him. Sometimes people wonder, what is God's will for my life? I heard Elder Coy Thomas make a great point from this statement yesterday. We wonder what God's will is for our lives. And many times when people ask that question, what they want is something grand and exciting and glorious. And they want God to speak to them the way that God spoke to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus or Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets and People think, what is God's will? What glorious things do you have in store for me, God? Because I know that on this stage of life, I'm in the middle of the spotlight. It's all about me, right? You know what God's will is for your life, beloved? To pray for your leaders. How do you know that? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior. It is good and acceptable for you to pray for our leaders and for all authorities. You see how relevant and practical This 2,000-year-old letter is this morning. Now, let's bring this to a close with verse 4. On what basis do we have the ultimate hope about those who are in even political authority? Look at verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? Again, will God have, understand, this? whoever he's talking about here will be saved. Because when God says, I will save someone, you read John chapter 6, read John chapter 8, read John chapter 10, read John chapter 17. When God says, I will save someone, they shall never come into condemnation, nor shall any man pluck them out of his hand. That's a fact. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. This doesn't say God really wishes everyone would be saved, but they won't. This is saying God will have all of a certain type of person to be saved or God will have some of all types of men to be saved. All men will not be saved without exception. We know that. Scripture is emphatic. There is a hell and there will be people there. And they are there because of things that they have done. And I would be there because of what I've done if not for the grace of Christ. What this means is that God will have all types of men to be saved. What's the context? Praying for your king and for all of your other rulers. Why? Because there's a chance, from our perspective, there's potential, perhaps is a better word, that God will save even a wicked king. That God could even... Quicken a wicked king who's a persecutor? Could that ever occur? That a person in authority that even persecutes the church unto death could be saved by God? Back back up into chapter 1 and read about the very man who's writing this to you. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Yea, even as he would say in verse 15, the very chief of sinners. Paul had some degree of political authority. And he was using it to persecute the church of God. God took the greatest persecutor of the church in the first century... He regenerated him. He quickened him. He made him a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he put him in the ministry. And he used this man to write the very epistle that we're reading. If God saved the chief of sinners, God can save anyone if it be his will. And so... The underlying reasoning behind this, not only because God intercedes, but we never know when God will even quicken one of our persecuting rulers. 
God will have all sorts of men to be saved, even rulers, even rulers that persecute, and to come into the knowledge of the truth. John Trapp wrote in his commentary, God has His even among the great ones. God has His even among the great ones. And so we pray that God would grant them the spiritual wisdom to rule in accordance accordance with God's Word to the pleasing of their Savior. Now we'll conclude with the simple explanation of verse 4. Because God will have all sorts of men to be saved, all sorts of men will, as a consequence of that, Come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at Revelation 7, 9, and you see a glimpse into heaven. And I'm going to leave that with you today as our closing thought. In Revelation 7, 9, there are people there, an innumerable host out of every nation, out of every kindred, and out of every tongue. Because God will save people of every sort, rich, poor, male, female, Jew, Gentile, and among the Gentiles, every type of Gentile, even leaders, because he will save people of all types, well, then there will be people of all types who then, as a consequence of that, come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we should pray for all types of men, not just those that we love, not just those like us, that we may lead a what? A quiet and peaceable life here in the world. When government does what God has commanded government to do, that is to be a terror unto evil, to terrorize evil, you'll find that the rest of the people, the innocents, as, as it were, of society, are enabled to lead a quiet life. Praise God for those that bear that rule. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that we would be a church that engages in supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks. We know, Father, that if we come to the knowledge of the truth, it's because you would, you would have us, you would save us. It's your will. We know, Father, that your Son came into the world to save all that the Father had given him, all that you had given him. And of all those that you had given him, he would lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. But we know, Father, that those that were given to him, as he said in John six thirty seven, according to other passages, are an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. So we know and we expect that we have brothers and sisters in every demographic, even those that bear the rule over us. So we pray for our leaders that you give them wisdom. But at the same time, Father, if you have quickened our leaders, we pray, dear God, that you would give them the understanding of what their role is in this society, that they're the minister of God to us, that they would terrorize evil and bear the sword, that we might have a society that is at peace, that we as your church... We as your bride might lead a quiet and peaceable life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.